You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church of Savannah. A sermon from our series entitled Walk by Faith. For more information, visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Um, And so we are in desperate need of you. Um, And thank you again, Lord, that that you move towards us, that you desire um, that we know more about you. So I pray uh, you'd help us this morning with that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can sit down. Good morning. Um, I'm back. My name is Talavo. I am the high school pastor here at CBC. It really is a pretty sweet privilege uh, to get to be here um, with you guys this morning. So uh, my wife, Bess, and I, um, we love watching movies, okay, as is kind of required, I think, for uh, working at CBC. Um, And lately, we have been watching the um, old Jurassic Park movies on Netflix. They're all on there right now, so just a plug, you should go and watch those. Okay, the first one came out in 1993, um, and it was, it's still, right now, like, really scary. Uh, even for how old it's been. And so have you guys ever seen uh, these YouTube videos that break down uh, the, a movie in like three minutes? Okay, that's what I'm about to do right now. This is um, the abridged version of Jurassic Park, okay? And so um, like Bill always says, if you haven't seen it by now, it's your fault, okay? I'm not, I, like, it's been out for 25 years. There should be no spoilers at all in any of this, okay? But here's, here's the movie... Um, kind of at a glance, okay? So basically, there's this billionaire. His name is Dr. John Hammond, okay? It always starts with a billionaire. Um, He decides he wants to build a theme park. And it's got all the latest technology. It's got a bunch of, like, safety features. uh, And he has a lab full of experts, okay? And he's filled this theme park with a bunch of living dinosaurs um, because that's really the only thing we haven't done yet, okay? Is to fill a theme park with dinosaurs. and he wonders, like, what could possibly go wrong? This is what the people want. It's dinosaurs in the theme park. And he thinks, as long as everything operates the way it's supposed to, then we'll be fine. We'll be totally fine if everything works the way it's supposed to. Um, and there's supposed to be all these different measures in place that's going to save and protect people if anything goes wrong. And obviously, everything goes wrong, okay? And that's the movie. Um, and so when I watch movies like Jurassic Park, when I watch a thriller or a horror movie, basically any movie that involves people having to run from things, um, I'm always struck by some of the decision-making that goes on there, okay? And that's also probably part of the fun with these movies, okay? It's pretty incredible where people choose to run for safety, especially when there are dinosaurs involved, okay? So the, like, maybe one of the most iconic scenes in the first movie is when uh, the mean, there's a mean attorney, there's always a mean attorney, the mean attorney decides um, that he's just going to go and sit in this bathroom stall and hope for the best. Meanwhile, the T-Rex is headed right his direction, okay? Um, And then basically he, the whole scene, I think it's like in the trailer too, right? He gets eaten while sitting down on this toilet, okay? Um, If there were a moral to uh, the movie... If this were like a fable of sorts, right? Um, it's this: is there really isn't anything you can build enough, build that's big enough 
to save you from a T-Rex, okay? That's the point of the whole movie. Every Jurassic Park reminds you of that. You can't build anything big enough to save you from a T-Rex. Um, and that is a little bit what we're going to talk about today, okay? Um, we're going to take a look at some of the places that you and I choose to run for safety, okay? We're going to take a look at maybe some of the places that we go to um, when the T-Rex is coming right at us, okay? So this week, we're going to continue our series on faith. Um, we've been in Hebrews 11 for a while, and we start there. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there, um, actually, Hebrews 11. Um, we start there, and then we see, we take someone from Hebrews 11, that's the Hall of Fame of Faith, um, and see what their stories can teach us uh, about our faith. So Hebrews 11, verse 1, gives us... Um, a biblical definition of faith, what faith is. Okay, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, and a few weeks ago, uh, Bill broke that down a little bit for us and put it simply like this. Faith is taking God at his word. Okay, faith is taking God at his word. And I'll expand on that a little bit uh, and say that taking God at his word means that you and I are confident and sure that God is who he says he is, okay, and that God has the ability to do what he's promised, okay? Taking God at his word means that you and I trust that God is who he says he is and that he has the ability to do what he's promised. So the writer of Hebrews gives us a ton of examples of people in the Bible who have taken God at his word, and that leads us to Gideon, okay? So um, take a look at verse 32, I'm going to read that, 32 to 34. This is what we get about Gideon in Hebrews, okay? And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Okay, I want you to pay special attention to two things in what I just read. Um, the writer wants us to remember that, that through faith, these guys obtained promises and they were made strong out of weakness. So through faith, they obtained promises and were made strong out of weakness. Those two things are going to come up a few times today. Okay, and then we can jump now to the story of Gideon. So if you could turn a little bit or a lot to your left in your Bible to the book of Judges. Um, we're going to start in chapter 6. Um, I don't know we're in church, so we feel like we have to have it all together. If you don't know where that is, you should really use your table of contents, okay? It's in there for a reason, and I really would love your eyes on there, so I'll, I'll tell you where mine is. The book of Judges is on page 200 in my Bible. Um, go to Judges chapter 7. Okay, and as you turn there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on what's happening in this book. Okay? So here is all you need to know about the time of the Judges. This is Judges in uh, 30 seconds. Okay? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? That's the very last verse of the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, okay? And what usually happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes is sin, right? And conflict and bondage 
and their sin ultimately cost them their freedom. Okay, so God in his grace uh, and his mercy raises up these judges uh, to deliver and to save his people. So Judges 2, I'll just read this, you don't have to go there. Judges 2, verse 18 says, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Then verse 19, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Okay, so this pattern continues throughout the entire book, right? More sin, more conflict. Uh, And Gideon was one of these judges. Okay, and that's going to bring us to Judges 6. Okay, so what I want to do first, um, I'm going to walk us through a little bit of his story, and then we'll come back around and see what maybe lessons the Lord has for us about faith. Uh, And just a heads up, there are a lot of really great, awesome stuff um, that I'm going to have to skip today in Gideon's story, okay? So don't be upset um, when I don't talk about the fleece. Um, But I would encourage you to take a look at this story. You know, it's really one of the great um, accounts in all of the Bible. Okay, so jump in. Verse 1 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Okay, so there's that pattern again. This time, it's the Midianites who have come to oppress Israel because of their sin. Right, and then verse 4 says, The Midianites would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land, leaving no sustenance in Israel. So these guys, whenever it's time to harvest their crops, they would come in and they would wipe everything out. Okay? And then verse 6 says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Um, and here's what God does. Instead of going out and finding the most reliable or the most talented or the most resourceful person in Israel, he goes and he calls the guy who's hiding out in a wine press, okay? And that's Gideon. Um, so let's read verse 11 to 16. Together, this is the call of Gideon, okay? Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. Okay? I love this account um, because Gideon is just like me and you. Okay, the Midianites keep devouring all of their produce. So this guy um, is hiding himself and his wheat in the wine press. Okay? It kind of reminds me of like when Amos, my three year old, um, when he hides in his room with his bowl of goldfish, uh, because he knows that if he leaves it out in the living room, then Ruby, his little sister, is going to come in and devour the entire thing, okay? 
Gideon in the wine press uh, is kind of like when um, you hide in your living room and you pretend you're not home because you don't want to talk to the people that are going door to door, right? Um, Gideon is hiding in this wine press. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is the fact that God moves towards Gideon, okay? And that's how God operates. He makes the first move. So Gideon is hiding in the wine press, and one of the last things he thought was going to happen that day was probably having an encounter with the God of the universe, okay? And then God calls him a mighty man of valor, which is also probably one of the last things Gideon thought would happen that day as well, right? He can't believe it. And he says, me? Like, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, I am, and I'm the least in my father's house. You're talking about me? I'm the mighty man of valor, okay? Like, we know that David was a mighty man of valor, right? And David fought alongside other mighty men. First Chronicles 12 tells us um, that these mighty men were experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions, who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. The least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. Okay, mighty men of valor don't hide in the wine press. Okay, uh, none of this makes sense to Gideon. So here's kind of the first big observation from this text. Um, Gideon has misplaced his faith. Okay, Gideon has misplaced his faith. And honestly, he doesn't have much faith to begin with, right? Um, he's shocked that the Lord would show up, uh, and he has zero confidence uh, that the Lord could actually pull this thing off. Okay, faith is taking God at his word. If faith means that we can trust that God is who he says he is, and we can be convinced that God has the ability to do what he's promised, then Gideon doesn't have much faith right now, okay? Um, he's honestly placed what little faith he has in this wine press, okay? He's put what little faith he has in his ability to hide from the Midianites. Um, Gideon and really the rest of Israel have misplaced their faith, and here's the result of that, okay? It leads to two things. The first one is this. They had forgotten God's promises. They would forgotten God's promises, and the second thing is this. They're powerless to help themselves, Okay? They've misplaced their faith, so they've forgotten God's promises, and they're powerless to help themselves. Their misplaced faith has left them weak. Um, we're actually told earlier in the book of Judges that after Joshua, Joshua's the prophet that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So everybody's like, welcome, Matt, at home. Um, Joshua, and the, after he and the rest of his generation had died, it says there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Okay, so Gideon is part of this next generation. Uh, they had forgotten who God was and what he's done. So it makes sense, right, that in verse 13, his response to all of this is like, no, that's not true. Okay, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Okay, Gideon has misplaced his faith, and it's left him and the rest of Israel totally powerless and unaware of the promises of God. Okay, but God, um, just like he does in all of Judges, um, and is his habit, right? In his grace and his mercy, God makes Gideon a promise. Um, 
And it's actually the same promise that God has made over and over again to his people. The promise is this, I will be with you. God makes getting this promise, I will be with you. And secondary to that promise is the other one that he makes uh, to him. He says, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Okay, so Gideon, right now in this moment, is a little unsure about this. Um, But God knows that the best thing that he can give Gideon is himself. The best thing that God can promise Gideon is himself. Um, So now we'll take a look at uh, how God makes good on this promise, okay? And we'll talk about maybe what, what, I, what I believe he wants to teach us about faith. So go ahead, turn to chapter 7. Um, here's what happens. So Gideon gathers the troops, okay? And uh, he counts them up, and, they count, and it comes to 32,000 men. Okay, and he's probably wondering how he could possibly drive the Midianites out with so few men. Okay, the beginning of chapter 6 tells us that the Midianites would come like locusts in number. They would come like locusts in number. That's Bible language for having 135,000 men. Okay? Um, so God says, in verse 2, the people with you are too many. Okay, don't miss that. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Okay, there's that misplaced faith. Again, so God tells Gideon, he says, okay, I want you to send home everybody who's afraid. Okay? Take a poll. Whoever's afraid can go home. And 22,000 men leave. Okay? Um, And so now it's 10,000 men. One of them has a history of hiding in the wine press. Okay? 10,000 men against a multitude. Right? Remember, the Midianites are like locusts in number. Now, I want you to imagine what Gideon and the rest of his men must be thinking right now as they just watched 22,000 men leave. Um, and just a quick aside here, okay, when you're reading the Bible, when you come across people in the Bible, remember that they're just like me and you, okay? They're not robots. They're not like superhumans. Um, they're not even like primitive. They're just like me and you. So don't be tempted to remove the humanity from the people in the Bible, okay? Gideon... Um, the disciples, the early church in Acts, they're people, and they get scared, and they doubted, just like we do, okay? So Gideon is in this spot right now, um, where he's like, what is going on? 22,000 people have just left, okay? Remember, they have a history of misplacing their faith, which probably means that at some point, um, he was probably tempted to locate his faith on the size of his army, Right, he probably, when they gathered, when he did the count, he probably looked around and said, okay, I think we could do this. This might be possible. We, we might could pull it off with all 32,000 men. Okay? But now he's at 10,000. And God looks around, and then God says, no, that's still too many. Okay? And Gideon's like, no, it's not. Okay? Still too many. So he has Gideon take the guys down to the water, and he says in verse 5, set, everyone, set aside everyone, who laps the water with his tongue like a dog does. Okay? So they count 300 guys who do this. 300 guys lap the water like a dog does, and the other guys kneel down to drink the water, and Gideon is probably thinking, great, okay, we're only going to lose 300 guys this time. It could be a lot worse. That's kind of weird that they did that, but like 300 guys, that's fine, okay? But then God says, okay, I want you to send home the other 9,700 guys. 
Um, and Gideon is probably wishing he could be back in the wine press, okay? Um, and so then real quick, okay, this account, you might have heard this before, okay, this account has very little to do with uh, how you're supposed to drink water, right? Um, it's totally fun. Whatever you need to do, drink water, okay? But there's zero proof, okay, in the text that the guys who lap the water are more alert or more on guard than everybody else. Okay, that's not in the text. This isn't about God giving Gideon the most capable and elite soldiers. Okay, God is trying to prevent him from misplacing his faith. Okay, this is not like um, he's kind of narrowing it down to these are the best guys I could find. It's 300, okay? This is about God putting Gideon in a position of weakness and a position of deficit to prove that all he needed was God himself, okay, and God's promise. I will be with you. Okay, it's out of this weakness that God will make him strong, and it's out of this weakness that God is going to prove again that he is who he says he is, and he can accomplish what he's promised them, okay? Um, so the way that this ends is unbelievable to me, okay? It's, it's comical. It's really um, it's a, an incredible account. So after these guys have seen their army dwindle, Gideon gathers them around. Okay, it's a very small group now. And he says, okay, everybody grab a trumpet and everybody grab one of those jars with a torch inside and just do what I do. Okay? Um, and it's really at this point where they have nothing left to put their faith in. Right? There's nowhere else to locate their faith except in God. And I'm sure they're wondering, how is he going to pull this off? Okay, can this God deliver? And up to this point, God has been so faithful uh, and gracious to remind Gideon of what he's promised. Okay, and so don't lose that in the story. God is gracious to you and to me in the midst of our doubting and in the midst of our questions. Um, he's given Gideon tons of signs throughout this whole account to remind him of what he's promised. Um, and so in verse 7, he says, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And real quick, here is how the Lord defeats Midian with 300 soldiers carrying trumpets and torches. This is verse 19 to 22. Um, it says, So Gideon and the 100 men who were with him, so they split up, um, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled, okay? And then Gideon, it goes on, pursues the Midianites. In chapter 8, uh, verse 28, it says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, okay? So what do we do with this, um, what can we learn about faith? What should we take away from this like, incredible and kind of weird account? Okay? Here's the big takeaway. 
um, for all this. It's not the amount or the quality of your faith that matters. It's where you've located it. The object of your faith matters more than the size or the strength of your faith. Okay, remember that Gideon had misplaced his faith along with the rest of Israel. They tried to place their faith in other gods. They tried to put their faith in other broken and sinful people. And they tried to put their faith in their army. And they'd misplaced, uh, they'd misplaced their faith. So the big question uh, for you and for me is this. Where are you being tempted to misplace your faith? Where are you being tempted to misplace your faith? What or who are you looking to for deliverance? Where are you hope, like, what are you hoping will save you? What are you looking to for freedom and satisfaction and fulfillment? Where are you going to run when the T-Rex shows up, okay? Um, a good way to try and discern where you might be misplacing your faith and your hope is to write out um, one or both of these sentences and fill in the blank, okay? If you do this right, this should just really hurt. This stings a lot, okay? The first one is this. As long as I have blank then I'll be fine. As long as I have blank, then I'll be fine. Or the next one you could do is, if I could just get blank, then I'll be fine. As long as I have this, then I'll be fine. If I could only just get this, then I'll be fine. Okay, where are you misplacing your faith? Some of us might be tempted to locate our faith in our jobs or in our finances, or in our resources, right? If I could just make a little bit more money, if I could just get that job, if I could just buy that house, then I'll be fine, okay? Or maybe you might be tempted to locate your faith um, in your body, in your appearance, or even in your health, okay? As long as I'm healthy, as long as the people still find me attractive, as long as I can still fit in those genes, then I'll be fine, okay? Uh, or maybe you might be tempted to locate your faith in success or in influence uh, or in the appearance of those things, okay? So as long as everyone around me thinks I have it all together, then I'll be fine. Um, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just outsell or outperform everybody else, then I'll be fine. Uh, or sometimes it's people or it's relationships. Okay, as long as my kids behave, as long as my spouse looks and acts a certain way, then I'll be fine, right? If I could just get married, then I'll be fine. Every day, you and I will be tempted to misplace our faith in a thousand different places. Okay, we can look to a thousand different things to satisfy us or to save us, and if we're being honest, you and I know that these things can't deliver. Okay, they can't deliver the security and the hope and the freedom that they might have promised. Um, and don't mishear me, okay? Some of these things are good things, okay? It's not wrong, it's not sinful even, right, to desire some of these things but they are not strong enough objects for our faith to rest on. Okay, the people and relationships in your lives, your kids, okay, our jobs, our bodies are not big enough to support the weight of our faith. They're not big enough to save us. 
Uh, Psalm 33, 16, 17 says this, The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its might, it cannot rescue. So what are we supposed to do? Um, The next big takeaway is this. You and I were meant to place our faith in God. Okay, Do me a huge favor and don't hear that through like, cheesy christian slogan okay that's true you and i are meant to place our faith in god gideon is not listed in the hall of fame of faith because of his income or because of his resume or because he grew up in a christian home and got a christian education okay he's not um he's there because he took what little faith he had and placed it in god okay he's in the hall of fame because he took god at his word. Okay, here's something really interesting. The only times in the Gospels um, where it says that Jesus marveled or was astonished at something, the only time Jesus marveled um, is in regards to someone's faith or someone's lack of faith. Okay, so it's not the strongest, it's not the most influential, it's not the most educated, it's not the most charming. Um, It's the people who take God at his word who are the heroes of our faith. Okay, it's the faithful, it's the people who trust God that make it into God's hall of fame and nobody else, okay? Uh, so Hebrews 11 tells us that Gideon, through faith, obtained promises and was made strong out of weakness. Gideon is a mighty man of valor because God had made him strong, okay? Uh, when you and I place our faith in God, then God delivers on what he's promised and he makes us strong out of our weakness. And here's kind of what I want to do next. Okay, I want to encourage you with some of the promises of God. Okay, um, this has been a pretty heavy season for some in our church. Um, for some people that I really care about, it's been a massively difficult time. And in a room this size, certainly, um, there are a lot more stories kind of like these, right? And the reality is that all of us have misplaced our faith at some point or another. My hope is that you'll just kind of grab one or two of these promises uh, make them your own. Okay, so in no particular order, here are some of the promises of God. Everything I'm about to say next is 100% true. Okay? Philippians 4, 6. Uh, you can write these down if you want. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. This promise is for me and for those of us who just are warriors, a ton, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here is the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. First Peter 5, verse 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him because, here's the promise, he cares for you. James 1, verse 5 promises, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James 4, verse 7 and 8 says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's a promise. 1 John 1, 9 promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 13.8 promises that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Matthew 28, 20, Jesus promises us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Joshua 1, 5, God promises, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 34, 18 promises that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And the last one, Romans 8, 38, 39, promise that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is who he says he is. And God has the ability to do what he's promised. Okay, and the last thing I want to do is to draw our attention to the true mighty man of valor, okay, to Christ. Um, I know that in a room this size, there are probably a few of us that are still pretty skeptical about this, about the promises of God. There are some who have yet to put their faith in Christ. And I would lovingly encourage you one more time that we have a God who makes good on his promises. Okay, and here's what Paul says about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 20, it says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Okay, here's the truth. You and I have a sin problem. And our sin hasn't just made us weak or helpless. Our sin has made us spiritually dead. Okay, and just like Gideon, what we need, the only thing that can solve our sin problem is God himself. Okay, and Jesus promises in John 10, 10, that he has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And here's another promise we get in Colossians. This is how God delivers on his promise for new and abundant life. This is what is true about those of us who have put our faith in Christ. This is Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. That's the promise that we've been made alive, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Um, so as we move to worship, you guys can come up. Um, let's look to Jesus, okay? Let's set our affections and our hope and our faith in him, right, to the one who is able to do all that he's promised and the one who's able to make us strong in our weakness. Um, let me pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that we can uh, bank on everything that you say is true. Lord, and I, and I pray, Father, that you would, um, and help our unbelief, that you would increase our faith. I pray that you would prove uh, to some God, that you prove to us, Lord, that you are exactly who you say you are. God, and you can do what it is that you've promised for us. So we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.